The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC to this week's Eye on the Triangle. It's Tuesday, September 28th, and on behalf of the EOT team here at WKNC, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I'm Ian Grice. And I'm Martha Donestorg. In anticipation of the city council elections next week, Tuesday, October 6th, Martha Donestorg highlights the voices trying to involve students in politics. The new club, Youth Government Association, is a nonpartisan group in Raleigh informing and energizing students. They don't care what your political opinions are, just that you have them. We also have a review of the 1984 movie Amadeus about the life and death of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart by Jake Winters. And Nick Weaver reviews the Front Bottoms fifth studio album Back on Top. Kevin Cronk will have some North Carolina news. And as always, Saif Hassan has the news beyond the headlines. And Peter Svizzini brings us the community calendar. Students have an opinion about everything these days. Well, almost everything. When it comes to politics, the majority of us are silent. A new club in Raleigh is trying to change that, Youth Government Association. As one of the co-founders and president of the NC State Club, Hans Siebeluk, puts it, The biggest thing that we try to do, like we said, um, is make sure the kids have an opinion, not try to sway them. They started a little over a month ago. While attending a panel discussion with City Councilman Bonner Gaylord, three of the now founders had a startling realization. Mackenzie Andrews, Chief Recruiting Officer. We got there and realized we were the only people in the whole room. There was probably about... 80 people in there, and we were the only people in the whole room that were under the age of 30. That night inspired them to get involved with Raleigh and bring others along for the ride. The club's founder and Raleigh area president, Michael Acapinti. Students don't understand the power that they have. I see a lot of kids who have no idea what a vote even counts for, and each vote really counts. Three to 5,000 votes would swing a city council seat. That literally can change the skyline of our city, and there's 30,000 students at state alone. They talk about there being 10% of the population of Raleigh as college kids, and even half of those got involved. We would have a drastically changed city. Youth Government Association wants to break down the issues facing Raleigh in a way a third grader can understand. They're nonpartisan, bringing in voices on either side of the debate, presenting city committees that us students might not be familiar with to talk about the issues they deal with. And they're not NC State specific either. All the universities of the City of Oaks, Wake Tech, Shaw, Meredith, NC State are involved. Right now, they're gearing up for the Raleigh City Council elections on October 6th. But Acapinti is also looking further ahead to 2017. It could be an Acapinti 2017 for sure. Definitely thought about it. It depends on whether or not the youth really wants to push. And we're going to see that in the next few coming weeks on this election here. I will be one of the youngest city councilors to run and hopefully the youngest to win. To get involved with the club, you can go to youthgovernmentassociation.org or you can find them on Twitter and Facebook at Youth Government Association. And Acapinti 2017 or not, 
He doesn't care what your opinion is, just that you have one. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Mirtha Donestorg. Once again, to my review show, this is Nick Weaver here, and today I'm going to be talking about the new release by The Front Bottoms called Back on Top. This is their fifth studio album from what I can tell, and their first released on the Fueled by Ramen label. Previously, they were self-released and then two LPs under bar slash none. Now they're back with this LP featuring 11 songs, all of which I will not be able to address in detail because this is an under 10 minute segment. Now, a word of warning to any current Front Bottoms fans. I've never listened to any of their other albums. I've just heard that one song about getting so stoned, and that's it. So I can't really compare their growth on this album. That aside, I will be giving as thorough a review as possible, so sit tight. First off, I'm going to yammer about the four singles off of this album. Yes, that's right, four. It doesn't quite beat Modest Mouse's record of five from Strangers to Ourselves, but that's still a fair amount of gusto. But you know what? It ain't just bravado. These singles deliver. The first single chronologically is Cough It Out, and let me tell you, this song is fantastic. Just a clear winner. It starts off strong and just keeps going. The guitar work on this album is fantastic, and I think it's most apparent in this song. The riffs are infectious. I now have type 2 riffitis. Worth it. The mental image from this song is clear. The emotion is powerful, and the lyrics are, as always, intelligently and sincerely delivered. I get a strong vibe of nostalgia from this song. Like, really, it's just drenched in sepia. I love it immensely. The second single is Help, not to be confused with the Beatles song. Even though it's easily the weakest of all four singles, this song is still pretty good. It's catchy and fun and the chorus makes you want to sing along. Like some of the first few songs on the album though, it does lose a lot of its charm with the excessive layering. Everything kind of blurs together into this somewhat generic song until you hit the chorus and bridge, which strips it back down again. This is a consistent gripe I have, and it surfaces in other songs like Motorcycle and Summer Shandy. Thankfully, this problem declines as the album hits its halfway point, ushering in somewhat mellower, less punk pop songs like Historic Cemetery in West Virginia. I mean, they're still punk pop, but slightly less so. Moodier, I guess. Anyways, Help is still a good song, and I think it's a good choice for a single. If pressed, I might swap it out for Two Young Lovers, but that's just me. The third single, Laugh Till I Cry, is one of my personal favorites on the album. It's cheeky, has fantastic wordplay like so many of the other songs, contains a fun callback to the first song, Motorcycle, and is extremely catchy with a decent verse and good fills. I considered this my number one favorite on the album for a while, but it keeps changing, so I'm done picking. This song and Plastic Flowers, the closer, really illustrate the clever lyrics and songwriting ability, as well as the band's wry humor. The final single is West Virginia. The song is mellower, like I said before. At least, it starts mellower. See, it's kind of a sad breakup song at first. Then all of that sad, sappy crap gets thrown off a cliff and it turns into a pop-punk F.U. type of song. It's insanely catchy and is one of the most distinguished songs on the album, second only to Plastic Flowers, which would have been a great single were it not such a wonderful closing song. West Virginia is one of the many songs on this album that uses ambient background noise beautifully to create a more whole sound. It's an impassioned song with great vocals and insanely catchy chorus, great lyrical flow, and brilliant simplicity. So what can be said for the album overall? Baby, it is solid like a rock. Or just rock in general. Solid. Super solid. Super salad. Hollandaise. I forgot where I was going with this. Anyways, the album explores various themes like teen angst, nostalgia, joblessness, as well as adult frustration and breakups. The band really has their own sound, and I suppose it should be expected after five albums, but I still say it's impressive, especially in this day and age. The vocals and lyrics are as distinctive as they are impressive, and the guitar work is absolutely phenomenal. At least for some songs. I'll admit that the album's not perfect, and this is where it shows. Not all songs are created equal, and that certainly rings true for Ginger and Motorcycle. 
which come off as unoriginal and a bit boring at times. Summer Shandy has its own problems, but it's different enough from the other songs that I'll give it a pass. Their verses are all about the same, and the only thing saving them is the great production value, which is great for the whole album, and the crazy catchy choruses. I seriously don't know how they do it, but just about every chorus on this album has been stuck in my head for some period of time. Their songs are just so infectious that you can't help but love them. This album is a great example of high quality, casual listening music, and fans of punk pop and indie rock alike should really enjoy it. Some of these songs really remind me of Wilco mixed with Blink-182 for some odd reason, so it's got that going for it too. The album may not be a work of genius or some artistic masterpiece, but it is a great piece, and the lyrics alone warrant at least some artistic admiration. If nothing else, I think that those last two songs, West Virginia and Plastic Flowers, have some real artistic potential. In the future, this is what I'd like to see from the front bottoms. More of an emotional connection to the songs, one that reaches out and grabs the listener. Maybe a couple of heartfelt ballad-like songs on the next album. They're close, but the front bottoms aren't quite there yet. Despite that, this is a fantastic album. I would recommend it to basically anyone. Just listen to it, it's worth your time. You can find it on Spotify and probably a dozen other places that you already know about. Front bottoms, back on top. The name ain't lying, y'all. As we close out, I've been Nick, though I'm also known as Lens, Meerkat, Klesk, or just that dude who can't dress himself properly in public. I'm less fond of that last one. Anyways, thanks for listening. For my final rating on a scale of negative 2 to 7, I give this album a solid 5. Above average and great fun, I've easily listened to this album upwards of 7 times and I'm still enjoying it. It'll wear thin eventually, but for now, it's got just enough finesse to keep me invested. This has been a review by Nick Weaver with Eye on the Triangle. I'll try to come up with a name for the segment soon. Until then, thanks again for listening in, and I'll speak to you all again next time. Hello, this is Jake Winters with Eye on the Triangle for your weekly movie review. This week will be a review of Amadeus. Amadeus is a historical fiction on the life of Amadeus Mozart. Even though many are familiar with Mozart's famous works, many do not have an understanding of where the genius got his inspiration and drive from. The film is from 1984 and was very well received in its time. It won Best Picture at the Academy Awards during the year of its release. Since this film is old and many have already reviewed and commented on it, the main reason I chose to review Amadeus is that it is a film that is well known, but there are many who have not seen the film. It is a three hour long film, if you watch the director's cut, and every second seems important. If any particular scene was removed or replaced, something would be lost from the film. The film is told from a rival of Mozart's viewpoint, Antonio Salieri. Salieri was in reality interacting with Mozart on a day-to-day -day basis as the film portrays it, though the film inserts drama to make what is historically known of Mozart's time in Vienna more interesting to an audience. This is my main problem with the film. The story is captivating and the characters seem real, probably because they're based on real people. But there are times where there are certain characters that say certain things that just don't seem to fit. There's a scene where Mozart is speaking with an actor about producing some music for him, and his wife interjects and is called Mozart's manager. The phrase is common to the modern ear, but during this time period, it is unlikely that this would have been a said about Mozart's wife. This is not the only instance where modern diction is inserted into the film's classical setting. I would not say that this ruins the film, but the scenes with this use of language certainly stood out to me. The film is in English, and the language they would have been speaking to each other would have been German, so it is very possible they could have said something with a meaning that had the same effect, but the way in which it was presented seemed cheesy to me. Watching the film gives perspective to what we may assume about history. You may know that Mozart was a child prodigy that was taught by his father, but you may never have thought of how such a life could affect someone. 
Amadeus gives us a view of what writer Peter Schaeffer was able to glean from writings about Mozart. The history of Mozart's life is complicated, and the story stays true to what historians know while also intelligently filling in the gaps left out of history. This story is meant not only to entertain, but also to inform. From watching this film, it is safe to say that anyone can gain a deeper appreciation for Mozart as a composer and as a person. Historical fiction will always have a place in film. It allows the audience to experience a version of what history could be like in a way that textbooks never could. It is important to realize that even while people that are famous in history are extraordinary, they are still people. Historical fictions do a great job of pointing this out. Movies like Amadeus are great for sparking interest in history as well. The composer Salieri's music likely would not have been played for years to come if not for the movie Amadeus. Salieri's music makes up part of the soundtrack for this film. This did a lot to help popularize it. It went on to be played in music halls across the U.S. as well as being studied academically. This most likely would not have happened if it were not for Amadeus. Here is a short clip of some of Salieri's work. was recorded by the Budapest Strings in the year 2011. Almost all of the recordings that can be found of Antonio Salieri's works have been recorded recently. This is most likely due to the movie Amadeus bringing his work to light. It is easy to see how this movie, along with other historical fictions, can be good for entertainment as well as education. If you have listened to my previous reviews, you will know that this is slightly different from the rest. It had a much larger budget and followed a more straightforward plot. I like to review movies that I feel are important for the public to take notice of. Whether it is remembering a movie and comparing opinions, or finding something entirely new, I hope to give the public a different movie each week that will be unique from what is being shown in the theaters. With that being said, Amadeus fits the criteria. It is an older movie that many have likely forgotten, and with new generations many have never even heard or seen of the film. I enjoyed the film myself, and I hope that you will do the same. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of the Movie Review. You can contact me with suggestions or comments through email at jmwinte3 at ncsu.edu. That's jmwinte3 at ncsu.edu. This is Jake Winters for Eye on the Triangle. Have a good night. I'm Saif Hassan, and this is your news beyond the headlines. From calling her a big mouth to making Monica Lewinsky jokes, China has reacted furiously at U.S. presidential candidate Hillary Clinton's recent comments about China's record on women's rights. Mrs. Clinton said in a tweet on Sunday that Chinese President Xi Jinping was shameless for hosting a U.N. conference on women's rights while persecuting feminists in China. Mr. Xi has come under fire for hosting the summit as several women's rights activists were held earlier this year for planning a demonstration against sexual harassment on public transport. Rights groups say several female human rights activists remain in detention. Mrs. Clinton has made women's rights a signature part of her campaign. State media on Monday unsurprisingly reacted with a fury, but the strongly worded editorial by the Global Times put in both English and Chinese and carried widely in other local media outlets.
It accused Mrs. Clinton of aping Republican candidate Donald Trump, who has himself made provocative remarks about China in an attempt to gain votes through China bashing. In its English editorial, Global Times called her a rabble-rouser engaged in shenanigans, but in Chinese it was even blunter. It looks like Hillary is in a panicked frenzy. Her eyes have turned red. She has started to copy Trump's speaking style and allowed herself to become a fierce big mouth. She really has lowered herself. Chinese people aren't angry at her, but we now despise her. News outlets also widely covered a response by the Chinese delegation in New York that said the women's rights activists were not arrested because they were advocating women's rights, but because their behavior flouted Chinese laws. Online, the reaction was more divided. Chinese citizens on blogging sites called her an old witch and made references to Monica Lewinsky, the former White House intern who had an affair with Bill Clinton. To quote one of these blogs, Hillary, you should quickly rush home. Lewinsky is already in bed with Bill. Why don't you mind your own business instead of talking rubbish about China? But others took her side, decrying the detention of the activists and the state of women's rights in China. Chinese women don't even have the right to reproduce, let alone women's rights, said Tay Laini Dongtui in reference to China's one-child policy. It is not certain whether Mrs. Klan has taken note of the online conversation in China yet, and if she has, she has yet to give a direct response. Meanwhile, her campaign team presses on. In Burkina Faso, members of a failed coup refused to disarm. The chief of army staff accused presidential guards of intimidating people carrying out the disarmament. Interim President Michael Kafondo was formally reinstated on Wednesday after an intervention from the army and several West African leaders. On Friday, his government ordered the presidential guards unit that carried out the coup to be disbanded. The presidential guards, known as the RSP, are a unit of 1,200 well-armed and well-trained men loyal to Blaise Compaore, the country's longtime ruler who was ousted in a popular uprising which set alight the parliament building last year. Members of the RSP stormed the cabinet room on September 16th, taking prisoner the interim president, the prime minister, and others. Coup leader General Gilbert Diander said he seized power because of plans to disband the RSP and exclude Mr. Compaore's allies from standing in the upcoming presidential elections. At least 10 people were killed and more than 100 injured in clashes during the takeover. A week later, when it became clear they did not enjoy popular support and after a threat from the regular army to step down or be ousted by force, the RSP withdrew. Diander admitted the push had been the biggest mistake. We knew the people were not in favor of it, he said. Subsequently, General Gilbert Diander's assets were frozen. A source in the RSP told AFP news agency that the disarmament process was deadlocked because a pledge to ensure the safety of the people who carried out the coup was not being respected. I'm Saif Hassan, and this has been your News Beyond the Headlines. North Carolina's death penalty system is broken, say criminal justice experts, and the recent pardon of two inmates by Governor Pat McCrory is proof, they say. Henry McCullen and Leon Brown were pardoned late last week on the recommendation of the North Carolina Innocence Commission and the prosecutor in the case. After the two men were found innocent in the murders of an 11-year-old girl, attorney Ken Rose with the Center for Death Penalty Litigation represented McCullen for 20 years. He says the fact that two innocent men originally sentenced to death is proof enough the death penalty should be repealed. It shakes the confidence of any death penalty supporter who is concerned about fairness and reliability of the death penalty in North Carolina or anywhere in the country. Since 1999, 
Seven people have been exonerated after receiving death sentences in North Carolina, according to the Death Penalty Information Center. Nationwide, that number stands at 150. Supporters of the death penalty say the punishment is necessary for the most extreme of crimes. Now that McCollin and Brown have been granted a pardon, they are eligible for compensation from the state for their time served. No execution has taken place in North Carolina since 2006 after the state's lethal injection protocol was called into question, but executions could restart if the issue is resolved. Rose says McCrory should impose a moratorium on executions, knowing there could be others on death row like McCollum and Brown. This is an immensely important case, and the recognition today by the governor of his actual innocence is an important step to say that we can't get this right. We haven't gotten it right in the past. There will be mistakes. Two-thirds of North Carolina's 149 death row inmates were sentenced more than 15 years ago, before reforms that reduced the number of death sentences and DNA testing was used. I'm Kevin Cronk, reporting on Eye on the Triangle. Good evening to you listeners out there. This is the Community Calendar, an Eye on the Triangle segment informing you of cool events and activities occurring on campus or around the Raleigh-Durham area for this upcoming week. The Engineering Career Fair will be tomorrow from 9.30 to 4. Whether you're looking for a full-time job, co-op opportunity, or internship, you will find the Engineering Career Fair at NC State to be a great place to start. The College of Engineering's Career Fair is one of the largest career fairs in the country held specifically for engineering students. The event provides an opportunity for prospective employers from a wide range of industries to meet with engineering students interested in working for their companies. The Engineering Career Fair will be held at the James S. McKimmon Center located just off of Gorman Street. Again, this event will be Wednesday from 9.30 to 4. Economist John B. Taylor will present the annual John W. Pope Jr. Lecture this Thursday from 7.30 to 9.30. John B. Taylor, the George P. Schultz Senior Fellow in Economics at the Hoover Institution, will speak on the topic of renewal of first principles. So, just to give a little bit more about the speaker, John Taylor is among the most prominent economists of his generation, influencing both economic thought and public policy. His fields of expertise are monetary policy, fiscal policy, and international economics. And he is known for his proposed rule for monetary policy, which is widely used as both a guide to policy and as a reference point for evaluating or describing monetary policies. In his 2012 book, First Principles, Five Keys for Restoring America's Prosperity, Taylor puts five defining principles of economic freedom that offer a foundation for economic success. Accessibility written is how University of Chicago economist John H. Cotran describes Taylor's book in a review posted on his blog, The Grumpy Economist. At a conference on Taylor's contributions to monetary theory, Ben Bernanke, former chairman of the Federal Reserve, referred to Taylor's three concepts that are central to understanding our macroeconomic experience of the past three decades. The Taylor Curve, the Taylor Rule, and the Taylor Principle. Taylor had served as senior economist for President Gerald R. Ford's Council of Economic Advisors and as a member of the council during the George H.W. Bush administration. From 2001 to 2005, he served under Secretary of Treasury for the International Affairs 
where he was responsible for the U.S. policies in international finance, foreign investment, international debt and development, and oversight of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Before joining the Stanford faculty in 1984, Taylor held positions as professor of economics at Princeton University and Columbia University. To wrap this up, again, this event will be this Thursday, September 30th, from 7.30 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. This event is open to the public and especially those interested in U.S. monetary theory and policy. There will be a really cool presentation held at the NC State Craft Center this Thursday at 6 o'clock by Tom Karches. This will be titled, Computers as Musical Instruments. Wearing a Muse Brain Sensing Headband, NC State OIT employee Tom Karches will share his style of music crafted from the mind's electrical pulses. It's amazing the many ways computers can be used as a tool for creative exploration as well as for musical production. Anyone is invited to this free presentation in which Tom will show applications of pure data and Sonic Pi live coding software that can be played in real time. Looking at sound in new ways can provide unique insights into how sound is actually created. Again, this event will be held at the NC State Craft Center this Thursday at 6 o'clock. The Poole College Fall Internship and Career Fair will be held this Friday from 10 to 3. More than 120 companies will be on campus this Friday. This is the college's largest career fair to date. This event is open to all NC State students and alumni. You can go ahead on EPAC to view the list of registered companies. This event will be held at the NC State McKimmon Center on the corner of Gorman and Western Boulevard. The James B. Hunt Auditorium will have a screening this Thursday of a movie titled The Competition. This is a part of the Moho Architecture movie series. This film is a raw account of how some of the best architects in the world struggle to beat the competition for the National Museum of Art in Adore. The doors open at 7 p.m. and the first 100 NCSU students with ID get in free. NCSU Friends of the Library get 10% off tickets. Tickets are $10 at the door. Cash, check, credit, and debit are accepted. Mod Squad members get in free until capacity is reached. The Moho Architecture Movie Series is co-presented by North Carolina Modernist Houses. And our last event on the community calendar for this evening is going to be a documentary film screening titled Without a Fight. This screening will be at the James B. Hunt Auditorium next Tuesday, October 5th from 6.30 to 8.30. Just to provide a little bit more about the movie. In a slum divided, soccer is survival. Set in 2010, Without a Fight explores how soccer can facilitate social change in Kidborough, one of Africa's largest slums. Footage of violent crashes fueled by polarizing national presidential elections is intertwined with profiles of youth from different religious and ethnic backgrounds as they navigate daily life and prepare for the final championship soccer game of the season. The runtime is going to be 105 minutes. The film's producer and co-director Beth Ann Kuchma will be on hand for Q&A. This screening is a co-presentation of Carolina for Kidborough and the NCSU Libraries. Carolina for Kidborough was co-founded by Salim, Muhammad, and Rai Barkat. This has been the Community Calendar. I am Peter Swazeni, wishing you a great week ahead. That's all we have for you this evening. I'd like to thank Mirtha Donastorg, Nick Weaver, Jake Winters, Kevin Kronk, and Peter Svizini for contributing. As always, if you've heard anything you've liked, you've hated, or anything that made you think, let us know and tweet us at WKNC underscore EOT, where you can also catch up on more local news. Also be sure to check out our blog at blog.wknc.org, where you can also download our podcast.
We will also be having Fridays on the Lawn concert coming up this Friday, and we'd love you to come out. The bands will be Look a Ghost and Natural Causes. The rain location is in Park Shops 201, and the non-rain location is at Harris Fields. The time is Friday, October 2nd, 5 to 7 p.m. Catering will be provided by Dickie's Barbecue Pit. Also be sure to check out our blog, and you can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle next week right here on WKNC. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Ian Grice. And I'm Martha Donstorg. And I'm Jake Winters.